You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. So long, farewell to what you thought. This is Shattered Souls. I'm your host, Karen Smith. This is a special bonus episode. I think I've made it pretty clear that investigators involved in violent crimes are deeply affected by what we see and what we hear and smell and everything else. But we're not the only piece of the puzzle. There are other people down the line that are just as affected as we are. And to be perfectly honest with you, I didn't know how deeply affected they were until I did a couple of interviews. The one that I'm going to present today is with a prosecutor that I worked closely with on a number of homicide cases, and she was a mentor to me, I think the world of her. And when I talked to her, I asked her a couple of pointed questions and some difficult ones too, especially about one case we worked together. And her honesty and eloquence and her emotions are pretty raw still, years later. And that surprised me. Taking the prosecutors into consideration should have been something on the forefront of my mind, but it wasn't, because I think I worked so closely with all of the other detectives that it was obvious to me how we were affected by everything, but the prosecutor is a little bit further down the line, and it never really occurred to me how hard these cases hit them as well. So I'll let her do most of the talking, but I think what she had to say was really eye-opening. Not just for me, but I think it will be for you as well. My name is Janine Kirch. I was an assistant state attorney in Jacksonville, Florida for almost 10 years, where I spent a majority of my career in the homicide unit and another big chunk of it prosecuting repeat offenders. We worked a few cases together, my dear. That's right. We have many. I wanted to ask you a question about how you got into homicide prosecution. You were drawn to it, just kind of like I was drawn to the crime scene unit. How did that happen? From a very young age, I knew that I wanted to be a prosecutor. I remember watching, and this is going to age me, I'm 37 now, by the way. Um, I remember watching the movie A Few Good Men. I was 10 years old when it came out. I still have 
my ticket stub to the movie theater trip that I took to see the movie, which is funny. And I remember watching the movie thinking, this is what I want to do, which is interesting because the movie is really defense-oriented. The movie is about defending two men charged with murder. But I knew I wanted to be in the courtroom. And I went to law school, and, you know, by the time I got to law school, I was like, oh, maybe I'll do contracts, maybe I'll do business law. And I was kind of shying away from my passion. I'm not sure why. And then I met London Kite, who's also a fantastic and extraordinary prosecutor, and she convinced me to spend some time with her at the state attorney's office. And it was one day. It took one day for me to spend with her. I'm like, I'm hooked. This is what I want to do. So I was fortunate enough to get a job at the state attorney's office right out of law school. I had just turned 25, and I was doe-eyed and very maybe naive and green to the real world. But once I got in the courtroom, I just knew, like, that's where I meant, it was meant to be. And I knew that I wanted to protect my community. And I knew that violence was very prominent in my community. And the only way that I knew really to protect them was to try and put away the bad guys and gals who were committing the violence. From day one, like, my goal at the state attorney's office was to work my way up from the bottom. You know, you start out in county court prosecuting DUIs and petty thefts and crimes that are punishable by less than a year in jail, and then moving on up to felony and started prosecuting more serious crimes, more violent crimes. And I was just hooked. I knew that's what I, I wanted to do. London Kite, I didn't know that she was your mentor. I adore her as I adore you. She is so brilliant. I was so fortunate, but it was really London who helped me grow as a trial lawyer. And I'm I'm eternally grateful. So you were drawn to homicide prosecution and mentored by this incredible woman, and then you left. Why? There's probably many reasons I can tell you why I left. One of the main ones was that I wanted to grow. I wanted to grow as a person. I wanted to grow as a lawyer. And I had a wonderful opportunity to join an extraordinary law firm here in town. And I've never regretted it because this firm is fantastic. I've been so blessed with the people who work here and how much that they've taught me because I was kind of like starting fresh, you know, moving from criminal to civil is a very difficult transition. But one of the things that was happening to me as a prosecutor was I was so focused on the bad and it can take a toll on you as a person. It did take a toll on me. I remember even leading up to my last week as a prosecutor, waking up from nightmares where I would have dreams that bad things were happening to me, to my loved ones. And it came to the point where I I hesitated closing my eyes at night because I knew I couldn't control what I was going to dream about. And I wasn't afraid that it would be something horrible like that. So I, I have to say that that part of my life has improved so much because I don't always live in fear or maybe even have a sense of numbness to death and crime. But, you know, I miss it. I miss it every day. For the first couple of years, it was really hard uh, because I feel very called to public service. But I'm also very lucky to be in a job and at a firm that really allows me to help people. It's just different. It's not on the level of protecting people from crime, but it's helping people who've been hurt. And that's important to the community, too. We left for the same reasons. The nightmares, the emotions that come along with it that I've, I've gone into detail about with myself. And hearing that from a prosecutor, you're dealing a lot more with the victims' families than I did. I didn't really deal with the people side of it too much. So I can imagine that having that burden on your shoulders day in and day out would be too much. In the beginning, when I first went to the homicide unit, was something I never expected. I went to my first crime scene, and it happened to be a double homicide. 
It was the first thing that I had been called to, my first time being in the homicide pager. And before I went on the pager, my supervisor at the time, who's now a judge, told me there, there are three times, Janine, when you call me. One, when it's a police-involved shooting. Two, when it's a clear death case, meaning we think we're going to file the death penalty notice. And three, when you just don't know what to do. And I got the call that there was a double. Two women had been shot in the street. And it wasn't even quite nighttime. So it might have even been a little bit daylight out. And I knew because there were two victims, there was a strong chance that we would be seeking the death penalty. And so I had called John Guy and asked him to go to the scene with me. And I will tell you, Karen, that there's not one detail that I have forgotten about that night. I can tell you what the sky looked like. I can tell you what the air felt like, what it smelled like, how I felt. And it was incredible. It truly was a life-changing experience in the sense that I was staring at these two victims in the street who'd been shot and killed. And my mind, I knew that they were gone. I knew that they were dead. But every time I looked down, I kept thinking, okay, get up, get up. Okay, get up. Because we were all, you know, standing around, blocking off the scene, and the crime scene detectives had showed up. And it was very, it was such a crazy experience to me. I'll, I'll never forget it. But there came a point in the beginning of being in homicide where it was, it was, it was hard to deal with death. And I think being so young, because I was probably about 28 when I went to the homicide unit, that I just convinced myself the only way to deal with everything was to shut it all off. And that was a bad decision because I seriously shut everything off. I had no feelings towards anything. And unfortunately, towards the person who I was dating at the time kind of picked up on it. I just I just had no feeling about anything. I was kind of numb. That's probably the best word to describe it. And it went on for a while. And I finally talked to some people, just friends. I probably probably should have sought professional help because it was, it was hard. It's traumatic watching death and seeing the horrible, horrible things that humans can do to each other. And so finally, I, I found a way to compartmentalize it, you know, so that I could actually be a human being again and have emotions and, and feel things. But I think for a very long time, even leading up to when I left, I had a very numb feeling towards death. You know, I could be out to lunch with a friend I hadn't seen in a while. I'd say, hey, what's going on? How are you? Oh, my grandma died last week. I'd be like, okay, well, what are you eating? You know, I didn't, I was so insensitive to death because that's the only way I knew to do my job and deal with death and be good at my job because emotions cause judgment. And so it, it, it was incredible because it, probably a few months after I left the state attorney's office, I was watching a commercial. It was just a commercial on TV and I was crying. I was like, what is wrong with me? I never had so much emotion come back. And so I, I knew that I had changed. And that's a segue to discuss this case because I remember it quite well. But I'm going to read you a quote and then I'm going to let you run with it. This was a case of a 13-month-old girl named Alexandria Williams, who was murdered. And the quote from you was, That was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do in my career. For the life of them, they couldn't understand why a homicide prosecutor was there. Oh, just you saying those words and bringing up the case gets me a little bit emotional. I actually, Karen, have a picture of Alexandria in my office right now that I am looking at. She is in a car seat and wearing this adorable pink little onesie and she's looking at the camera smiling and she is just stunning so it's a very emotional case i remember it was hard because it's a baby she's just a baby and when we were called on it i remember just thinking this can't be this can't be because the call i got was she's not going to survive and alexandria had been left with the mother's best friend's 
child who was a teenager at the time, Navarra Blaine. I think that, you know, we went to the hospital. Eileen picked me up. We went to the hospital, and little Alexandria was on life support. And I, I will tell you as much as I want to forget it, I never will forget seeing her hooked up on this life support. It was one of the most horrifying sights ever, just a little defenseless baby. And the parents, I don't believe, really understood at the time that she was not going to make it. And obviously, my presence wasn't going to make them feel any better because I was a homicide prosecutor, and that meant their baby was going to die, and that meant that someone caused it. So I knew when they met me that they had no comprehension of what was going on. And that was really hard because I didn't want to bring any more pain to people who I knew were going to be going through the worst moments of their lives, as, as they already were. And so I really, I remember, Karen, it, after we left the hospital, I mean, she didn't understand. They didn't understand why I was there. We really, I don't recall us going into detail other than we were investigating and we wanted to leave them be because they were going to have some tough decisions ahead of them. And Eileen and I left the hospital we get into her car, I get into the passenger seat, we just look at each other, the car wasn't even on yet, and we both just started crying. I mean, just crying uncontrollably. And, you know, I don't know if Eileen will ever want to talk about that moment either, because it was just horrible. Ultimately, a little Alexandria passed, and our investigation really, you know, it, it had started obviously the moment this thing happened and we were aware of it but with the family we gave them time to get through the funeral all that really hard hard phases and then we brought them in and I remember I said we need to meet with them in this conference room they're going to need some space because we also knew something that they didn't know at the time not just that Alexandria had been beaten to death but that she we believed the evidence was going to show that she'd also been sexually abused. And she and was 13 so, months old. Let, let's not forget she was that 13 part. 13 months old. And we did not know. We couldn't figure out why this happened, right? Why? What would have made Javaris Lane do that? And it wasn't until his interview that we realized Eileen had brought in a doll to the interview room to have Javaris show us how it was that he hurt little baby Alexandria. And he demonstrated it which is one of the major reasons the case didn't go to trial was because he admitted what he had done. Now, he did not admit that he had sexually assaulted her or done anything, which we did not know that that happened until the autopsy. I mean, just, it was hard to wrap my mind around it, and I don't have children, but when the medical examiner was explaining how they could see the damage and just explaining it to us, I mean, we were sick to our stomachs. And the hardest thing I had to do was not only tell mom in that room that her child had been murdered and we were we were prosecuting the person who did it who was close with her but that her little baby had been sexually assaulted and the only part that I can really recall from her reaction was that she threw up in a trash can and we just sat there in silence for a while. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. 
Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. We had a large sentencing hearing, and Eileen Simpson was on the stand testifying. She was crying. I was crying. I'm pretty sure everyone in the courtroom was crying. The news reporter who was in there had reported in the news that night that everyone was crying. And I'll never forget explaining to Judge Saud, she's 13 months old. She will she will never be able to tell her parents, I love you. She'll never be able to go on her first date. She'll never have a first kiss. And as I'm saying all these things, I am clenching the Kleenex that's in my hand so that I'm trying to not cry to get through it. And I remember we, we took a break in the room before Judge Saud came out and pronounced the sentence. And Judge Saud said, reviewing the photographs of this, this beautiful baby, even her eyelashes were stunning. And that has stuck with me. He, he was such a very eloquent judge and so smart, but it just stuck with me because it was true. I mean, she was gorgeous baby. And no baby deserves to have that. No one, no human deserves to have that happen to them. And it was just, it was really, it was really tough. It was very, very, very tough. You know, everyone, people watching the news hear about homicide cases and they know that it's sad and that someone lost their life and, you know, they, okay, what's next? Who did it? Is he going to go to prison? She go to prison. And I don't think that they realize all that's behind that are people, right? Human beings are prosecuting the case, human beings are investigating the case, human beings are collecting evidence, human beings are examining the body of a 13-month-old baby that is no longer with us. You know, human beings are defending the person who did it. Human beings are in the courtroom listening to what happened day in and day out. And I think that when people don't understand how much this truly can affect you as a human being, we're all, everyone that I know that I worked with, whether it's Prosecutors, public defenders are doing their best. I know that. I I enjoyed all the prosecutors I worked with. I enjoyed the defense attorneys I worked against. I know that they have a different job than I did, but they worked hard to do it. But at the end of the day, we're people first. And it's hard. It's hard to deal with. It's hard to manage. And it's hard to go home and be normal. And I don't, I use the word normal. I don't really even know if I understand what it means to be normal. But, and I'm using it in the sense of, I go home. And my husband has no idea what I've seen all day. He has no idea what I've looked at, what I've heard about, the threats that happen day in and day out to prosecutors, to their, you know, the defense attorneys, you know, the jail calls I've listened to. I mean, that that is just a one part of your life. And I would go home and try and not let that affect me and be normal, right? Be the person who didn't know that my life was threatened by someone who would actually kill me if given the opportunity to do so. And that, I think, is difficult to do. It's a the job that a prosecutor has, that a, a police officer, a crime scene detective, homicide detective has, it's not easy. The work is difficult, but it's not easy because we're humans, and it hurts, and it's hard, and we try to do the best that we can, and that's all we can do is do better, be better every single day.
Thanks for going through that case. I know that that's painful for you, and I'm really glad that you still have her photo up, and I think that's really touching, and I'm sure that every time you look at it, I have no doubt that you say a prayer for her and for her family. So thank you for that. Absolutely. What happens when a case isn't one? What happens when you know that somebody committed a heinous crime walks like something failed, either the evidence, my part failed, or the jury failed, or the system itself failed? It's hard. It's hard to lose, right? It's hard to lose knowing that the victim's families or the victims themselves, especially, you know, whether it's burglary, robbery, that, that they didn't get justice. They, they don't feel complete anymore because they're, they're victims forever and the person who did it wasn't held accountable. That's hard. That's hard because you feel like you failed them that you didn't convince the community that, you know, your jurors that this person did it. But as far as the homicide cases go, I only recall, and my memory could be fading me, but I only recall one homicide trial that I lost. It was the last trial that I tried as a state attorney. And I will tell you this, I even think I said it at my my going away party at the office was, I gave three weeks notice at the office, and truthfully, I just wanted to spend my time in the office getting my files organized, making sure that the person who took over for me didn't come in and say, gosh, you know, she's, I can't believe this is a mess. I, I wanted to make sure that I had the family set up so that they could be in a good shape with their new prosecutor because leaving a case does not make victims' family members happy. They, they get to know you, they trust you, and they don't want anyone else touching their case. So that, that part's hard, but I was asked to try a case with a coworker. It was going to be for the last week that I was there. There was no one else available in the office, and so of course I, I was going to do it. And it was a very, very difficult case. I think there had been multiple mistakes on, on different levels. And I, I won't ever blame one person because that's not the case. But we finished the trial. We got a not guilty. And it was very, very difficult because I knew it was my last trial. I really didn't want to go out on a loss, but mostly... I come to know the family, and I really felt bad that we did not get them justice. They knew it was difficult, and I will tell you, the saving grace from the pain of that loss was that family. Because after the verdict, we went into a side conference room with all the family, and my partner, who was I tried the case with, was kind of apologizing, saying, "I'm sorry, you know, we we did everything we could," and I said. We started this trial with a prayer with your family. I think we should end it with a prayer. And we stood in a circle, we held hands, and the family said a prayer. And at the end of that, they thanked us for our efforts, and they said, we're moving on. And it was probably the most comfort I could ever have after a loss like that, because I knew that someone who I believed had committed murder was going to be back on my streets again, and the family had said, it's okay, Janine. Thank you for fighting. And that, I mean, that will stick with me forever. Serious grace on their part. Serious, serious grace. You don't, you don't see that much these days, but it, it truly, and they'll never, they may never know the impact that that grace had on me. And I, I'm truly grateful for it. Well, maybe they will now. Maybe they will now. Yes, I hope so. And I hope wherever they are that they're living their lives to the fullest and enjoying every moment. Thanks for your time, Janine. You are wonderful, oh, and I wish you the best of yeah. luck as you move forward in your new career. I'm glad that you're happy. Well, thank you so much, Karen. I'm so proud of you, all that you've accomplished, and I know that you just have such a bright, bright future, and you're going to just keep moving up and moving forward. I'm so proud of you. I'm proud of you, too, my friend. Stay in touch, thank okay? You. We'll talk to you soon. You got it. 
This is the new real. Opening music by Sam Johnson at samjohnsonlive.com. Underscore music by Kevin McLeod at incompetech.com. All rights reserved by Angel Heart Productions. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.